0: Industry Talks is here to bring you the best and brightest in the aviation industry we will be speaking with industry experts on a wide range of topics from career successes to career changes the aviation industry is on the rise and we're here to help you navigate through these unexpected times whether you are entering or re-entering the workforce this is the pilot podcast that you've been asking for
1: Joining us today is former Nationwide pilot Daniel Perry. Daniel was the first officer and pilot flying on Nationwide Flight 73. Now, if that flight sounds familiar, it's because on the 7th of November 2007, off of Runway 01 out of Cape Town, the 737-200 was operating along with Captain Trevor Arnold, experienced an engine separation on takeoff, leading to a fuel leak and a loss of the aircraft hydraulic systems. Join us, as he recalls the events of that day, shares perspective on the value of quality training, meaning not only on the depth, but the breadth of experience that pilots came through the aviation careers, and the importance of maintaining the big picture during high risk and high pressure events. Dan, welcome to the PDC Energy Talks. It's great to have you on the show. And thank you, obviously, for taking the time out to discuss your experiences on that fateful day nationwide wide Boeing 737 seven. Uh, was flight 273 was it? Uh, 723 yeah thanks for having me Dan um, it's really it's really an
2: honour to be called uh, and uh, to get this kind of call and to be uh, asked to share the story thank you
1: yeah no, it's, it's already it's one I think that's really stuck out particularly in South African aviation and that's spoken to um, a lot of people speak about on a, on a day-to-day basis well well, regularly um, because it was just such a, a unique kind of incident that's, you know, it's one of those events that people don't think are ever likely to happen, Although you know, you train for it on, on a regular basis, but you know, kind of a, an extreme event to happen um, and to fly through. So we're very I'm very excited to, to, to speak to the man that was there. Uh, that lived through this experience and find out what's going on through, through your head at the time and how much you're able to process. But yeah, I think it's going to be an exciting chat. Um, and just the first question, it's a question I like just to ask everyone, when did the, journey, the, the aviation journey for you kind of take off? What's your starting point in aviation? I started flying quite a young age. It's
2: the, uh, the only thing I've ever wanted to, to do from kind of my earliest memories as a little boy going to air shows with my dad, etc. cetera. Um, I was 16 years old and Daimler-Benz Aerospace had a, a scholarship program uh, to take 100 kids up to solo standard um, on gliders. And then from those 100 uh, solo students, they would choose uh, two and take them through to full PPL. Um, so together with another friend of mine at school, um, entered the, um, the, the, the selection process and got in. Um, funnily enough, the last two guys to get in, 1999 and 100, and uh, started learning to fly gliders at 16 years old at Macaulay's um, Gliding Club out at Orient Airfield in Joburg, or just west of Joburg, west of the TMA, and um, have uh, been flying there ever since. I still remember to this day. I am um, halfway through the scholarship. They ran out of uh, funds. The, um, the funds were believed were misappropriated, and uh,
1: as as happens, as happens, unfortunately
2: in South Africa. And yeah, so I um, didn't have any money, but still had the passion. So I got a job on the airfield restoring a 1967 Lotus Elan uh, with one of the pilots there who was restoring it in his wow. hangar. And instead of paying me um, a salary, he gave me one flying hour for every day that I um, completed, uh, every day of work I completed. And the day that the Lotus was finished, the day that was the day that uh, I got
1: my license. an awesome story. What did you learn from that experience, just working on that Lotus? It, what, what would you say was the, the thing that stood out for you there? It was quite a formative time, time of your career.
2: Yeah, I learned that nothing's for free. If you want something, um, even if uh, somebody extends the hand of friendship to you, that nothing's free. You, you better be prepared to wait for it, especially in aviation. Yeah. You don't need a lot of money. You don't need a lot of uh, connections, et cetera, et cetera. You just need the drive and you have to pitch up every day and get it done uh, and get what's need to be uh, do what needs to be done. I, um, yeah. I see a lot of net forums, Facebook forums where the first question that's asked is how do I get someone to sponsor my license? And I just feel, and I often comment, I feel that's so wrong. You should be asked the question, what do I have to do to get my license? Where can I work? Can I sweep your hanger? Can I carry your toolbox, cetera, You know, Can I wash your plane? Those are the questions that should be being asked and not where do I get a sponsorship, where do I get a business?
1: Yeah, it's that kind of go getter. Personality or attitude in aviation, you looking and pursuing those opportunities and making it happen for yourself where you can. And um, that, you know, really, those are the kind of people that that make it um, or make it sooner than most. So, so I think it's a running theme amongst many, many pilots. Um, but so you got your PBL. How did you end up in the right hand seat of the 737? at uh, what was then the so African Carrier Nationwide? What was your journey to that to that point?
2: After I got my PPL, I uh, stayed at the gliding club and flew the Cessna 182 that was doing the the, the uh, tow launches, the aerotow launches. And uh, there was a great opportunity that came up. One of the members had a, or still does have a operation in Bloemfontein where, as in the European winter, a lot of European pilots come out to practice in our You know, great conditions that we have during uh, during summer, especially in the Bloemfontein area, the Free State area. So, I flew the 182 there for him for four months, and quickly built up 160 odd hours on the 182 and 900 odd glider launches, which is quite a lot of flying. And uh, came back from that, and was very uh, very fortunate to have met um, Bruce Hyde who uh, was a friend of a friend and uh, did a Piper Seneca rating with him. And then another friend of mine who was, was instructed at the flight school that I was working at, I was a uh, ops clock desk jockey at the Lanceria Flight Centre, LFC, which is now Grand Central. One of the instructors there was flying a Dornier 228 in contract and he phoned me and said, Dan, do you have your com?" So I said, no, I don't, but I have all the requirements. I just need the IF rating. So he said, "Get it. We need uh, co-pilots ASAP, and your numbers on the um, on the top of the list." So I did an IF rating in ten days, Jeez. and then yeah, my, my and my test was on the Dornier two tests. I did my multi-turbine uh, IF test, all in com test, all in once um, on the Dornier.
1: Uh, how much flying were you doing a day to get that done?
2: Uh, I was doing two sessions a day, four hours a day. Yeah, uh, doing a hell of
1: a lot. Yeah. And it's a, heck, it's a heck of a lot.
2: It's a, but it's, again, there's a job at the end of a piece of string, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you, you've got to get that hook in your mouth. So uh, I got my com on the Thursday afternoon and uh, had the paperwork at CIA Friday morning. And by Sunday, I was in Burundi flying Dornier eight for Star Air Cargo, which is uh, still around. Uh, flying, They fly 737s now. Flew the Dornier for two and a half years, got my command on the Dornier, and then the owner of uh, Star Air, Peter sold the Dornier, bought a 737, and he said, uh, the right-hand seat is yours. So I went along to Comair and to the external training uh, department through under Glen Warden and did my 737-200 initial rating there, Uh, along with base training, which was pretty cool. Because I wasn't rated on any – I had to do um, four circuits at Bloemfontein in the 737, which was pretty much the highlight of my career at the time. And um, from there, Pete's aircraft didn't arrive in time. And the gentleman that he is, he organized me a contract position at the now defunct Zambian Airways, which were operating two ex-SAA 737-200s out of Lusaka between... Johannesburg and Dola Lusaka and Dar es Salaam sure so I went to Zambian Airways uh, on a sort of like um, sublet from from Star Air flew there for two months and came back and um, again Bruce Hyde stepped into the mix and said to me that they need um, co-pilots at Nationwide uh, he was a a captain there at the time so I uh, Peter at Staricago very graciously let me go from my contract and I joined Nationwide the next day and uh, had to do a slight refresher, two SIM sessions um, with the, um, in the SIM to get up to date on their, their procedures, SOPs, etc. cetera, and uh, there I was in the right-hand seat two weeks later in Cape Town on the um, 9th of November.
1: Well, wow. it's kind of it's just interesting. You never know when you're going to get that call. You meet these people in aviation, and, you know, you've mentioned Bruce a few times, they kind of take you under the wing and and try to open up those doors for you or at least keep an ear to the ground just to, you know, ensure that if there is a gap, it's available to you. But like you said, you've got to be willing to take it. And it seems like you, you took all those, all those shots that were available to you. That yes, there's, there's, yeah. Sorry, um,
2: there's that old adage, you know, luck is where opportunity meets preparation. And the, the whole thing is just be prepared. Um, okay. Get the rates, even if there's nothing going. If somebody offers you a type rate, take it. If somebody offers you a tailwheel conversion, take it. If somebody asks you to drop skydivers, etc., take it. Um, it might not be in your career path or your um you know, you think, oh, well, I'll, I'll fly a 210, then a Baron, and then a King Air, and then an Embraer 135, and then a 737, then a Jumbo. Sometimes your career path is not a straight line, and you've just got to be prepared to
1: to take it. Yeah, got to be flexible in aviation. Can you just set the scene for us, though? The day, the day this event occurred... Um, do you remember it vividly? Can you just take us through the journey at Ops, what the weather was like, uh, where you're flying from, and to just, just to set the scene? Uh, um, as mentioned,
2: I uh, joined Nationwide two weeks before, and I'd just got on, sort of online, done my line check, et etc. et cetera. And um, the, the whole premise of the, of the Nationwide job was um, that I take a Cape Town base, and I lived in Joburg. So uh, I made a plan, moved down sort of like on a temporary basis to Cape Town. And uh, I signed on that. I actually swapped the flight out with a friend of mine. I was supposed to do the early morning uh, Cape Town, Johannesburg, Cape Town return. And he was supposed to do the afternoon one. And he needs to fetch his child from school. So uh, I, uh, I actually swapped the flight out with um, him. <laughs> we, we flew to Orleans together. funny enough, he's actually currently at SAFEX. Um, and uh, he he swapped the flight out with me, so I got to ops. Uh, I met Captain Trevor Arnold for the first time uh, in my life. Uh, we we briefed. The weather wasn't great. It was uh, typical Cape Town uh, morning, uh, low cloud, windy, driving rain, etc. And uh, Trevor and I briefed the weather. We briefed the NOTAMs, the technical state of the aircraft. Uh, the route, et cetera, et cetera, And then in this sort of threatened era, I'll watch and then I'll fly us back from from Joburg to Cape Town. So uh, I said, great. Um, and off we went to the aircraft. The 7.3 uh, is a, they, they don't allow derated takeoffs or, or flex takeoffs as the textbooks call them, uh, in um, wet conditions the 737-200 models so uh, we briefed a max stress takeoff and uh, we the other thing we did was load plenty of gas on board i cannot yeah. remember the alternate for joburg or if there were storms in joburg or whatever But we did have ten thousand, uh i believe ten thousand two hundred kilos of fuel on board which is full wings and then some in the in the uh, belly tank uh,
1: just just curious what would you have what would be considered average for that kind of sector in, in in good weather conditions? Good weather conditions
2: with lanciers alternates about eight tons, eight and a half. Okay. Um, on the modern generation, seven threes, uh, seven thousand kilos. Uh, but obviously, they're much more efficient. Sure. Um, I am speaking very some uh, thumbsack, uh, very rough, of course. Yeah, but but
1: you had more than than what you'd normally be carrying for that kind of sector. Yes,
2: we did have more. Yeah, we did have more on board, which was. Turned out to be uh, quite fortuitous later on in that day.
1: <laughs> Weather's not looking great. Uh, you, you just met Trevor Arnold. You board the flight. Everything's going swimmingly. Um, nothing stood out for you, I would imagine. You line up on the runway. You push Toga for takeoff. And what happened? Yeah. Line up
2: on the runway, as you say. Final wind check and uh, push Toga The aircraft uh, starts rolling on the runway. V1, the V1 rotate split is quite high uh, under weak conditions. And uh, so a bit of a weight rotate. And when Trevor called positive rate and put his hand, and I said gear up, and he put his hand on the gear levers, all hell broke loose. There was a, I can't describe the noise, but it was like a grind, a grinding noise. A crunching noise and a loud snap all at once. It was like a compound noise, if there's even a word like that in the English dictionary. Like a an metallic almost kind of tear. Tearing, grinding, snapping, all at once Jeez. noise. This is over the over this the, the, the scream of a JT8 or a pair of JT eights. And the aircraft, all of a sudden a thrust lever snapped back um like like a mousetrap trap, almost, into its right back to the gate. The thrust reverser light came on, and all the engine instruments got flagged. They're all analog instruments, and they all have little red mechanical flags that come out. They all flagged, and the aircraft rolled quite substantially into the into the live engine, which um, anybody who, um, who who doesn't understand asymmetric flight is not supposed to happen. It's supposed to go into, into the other engine, into the dead engine. And this was at, I don't know, 50 foot radar alt. Um, the Boeing book says that you move the gear to that position or you call positive rate once the altimeter starts moving, um, not the rate of climb indicator. So maybe 50 foot on the radar alt, it started, uh, it started moving. And... Uh, I rolled it with the 737, with a swept wing aircraft, especially the 737-200. You catch an engine failure with aileron, not with rudder, as you would in say a, a Seneca or, or a Baron or etc. You actually catch it with aileron, and I full opposite control aileron, and the aircraft kept rolling. And um, this obviously had to do with the fact that uh, there was two and a half tons of engine that had just left the wing and that wing was incredibly clean. So there was no drag. So kept rolling. So I used, went back to the to PPL days, to gliding days, and that's used rudder. Uh, swepting aircraft will roll quite nicely on on rudders. Uh, so pushed some rudder, pushed some rudder in and got her wings level and uh, settled it down. And I remember quite vividly at the aircraft um, going to a zero uh, zero rate per minute climb. It was just flying perfectly level. And then it kind of like bit, if that's the word, like it started biting like the the airflow and and then started flying. And that all happened in in seconds. Part of what happened was the uh, bus transfer. So obviously lose a generator on that engine when it fails or when it uh, separates and with the, the transfer of electrical sources and the manual relays that, uh, that have to take place, I lost all my instruments, my primary instruments. So I had to lean across to Trevor's side and, <laughs> and look at his his uh, ADI and, uh, and HSI and kind of figure out where I was and then uh, take it there. <laughs>
1: Uh, just, uh, just to recap, so have lost your something's happened to the engine in a 50 foot a grinding, tearing noise. You can't get the wings level, you have to sip in a bit of rudder. All your engine instruments are flagged, and not only that, but you've lost all your primary flight information, all in cloud and poor visibility conditions. Yes, yeah. Pretty so much. So typical day at the office, yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know. Murphy, you know, Murphy was an optimist. I think when, when he was out that day.
1: Oh, that's like a that's a mean kind of sim session instructor would plan for for a relatively experienced crew. I mean, and this is this is happening in real time. This is real life.
2: Yes, yeah, it's real life. Um, and funnily enough, that's one of the things that went through my head. Um, I said to myself, "This isn't the sim. This is for real now." So fly this aeroplane. Uh, it all kind of came. All the instruments, etc., came back and uh, Trevor, Trevor and I went through the memory items. Um, with For those who don't fly, um, commercial jets, mo- most emergencies are handled with a checklist, but um, in certain certain instances, you need to do some memory items. Uh, in, the, in the event of an engine uh, severe damage or separation or fire with a uh, 737-200, there are some memory items which are disconnect the auto throttle, identify and verify the um, affected engine, slowly retard the thrust lever to the idle position. Obviously, once once it's verified, that's very important. You don't want to throttle back the, the live engine, a good one. And then uh, the fuel cutoff switch, which is uh, basically a start, your start switch, which controls the fuel valve and ignitions to to the engine, you move that to the off position and then pull the fire handle. Um, if there's a fire, you would obviously discharge the bottles into, into that engine, but um, in, in this case, we had no fire. You actually have to manually override it. Uh, there's a little button that you push to click and override it to uh, to pull the fire handle, which disconnects a whole bunch of systems from the engine, such as thruster versus hydraulics. You don't want hydraulics, fluid pouring into one a burning engine, uh, it's you know—it's oil. It disconnects the electrical source and it also disconnects the fuel um, as well as the thrust traverses. So a lot of things happen and these have to happen from memory and then you go back and then verify that you've done this with the checklist and then the checklist will continue uh, on into um, some more advanced items preparing the aircraft for the descent and the landing, etc, etc. So um, while we were doing this, uh, these memory items and we completed the memory items, uh, we had, in the meantime, aviate, navigate, communicate. As part of the navigation part we had to intercept in those days was the radial 353, I believe. Uh, Charlie Tango Victor outbound to Robin Island um, while you're accelerating the aircraft to clean the flaps up, etc., etc. So we were busy doing all of that when... Trevor, um, so the flight path was under control. The 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 memory items were out of control, and the navigation was under control. And Trevor said to me that the comment was like, um, "Dan, you need to trim the aircraft a bit more. We are out of trim." And flying in trim is quite critical uh, in a, in a in a single engine scenario because you don't want any drag. That you, um, that you don't need. And the 737 uses, apart from ailerons, uses spoilers. So you don't want spoilers hanging out into the breeze um, while flying with one engine. And I had been guilty of this in the simulator, and I did my my sim prep or my sim transition at Nationwide uh, with the late Laurie Kay from SA. He had retired from SA. And Laurie was a phenomenal instructor. Um, and he very gently reminded me that I wasn't trimming the aircraft properly in the sim. So I thought, oh, well, this is the sim coming back to haunt me. So let's do what Uncle Laurie said and focus you know focus on my uh, on my flying and I, and I was really battling and I said to I said to Trevor, trevor I'm, I can't get this aircraft to trim." So he said to me, "Would you like me to take it for ten seconds and just feel it?" So I said, Sure. Took it over, and five seconds later, gave it to me. Back, gave it back to me. He said, "Dan, I don't know what's going on. Whatever you're doing, just keep doing that." And what I eventually wound up doing was trimming it to about half to two thirds, um, and then using my foot, losing the rudder to to uh, augment the the trim. And that had to do with the fact that the aerodynamics completely changed. There was a hole in the wing and uh, an engine missing, and fuel leaking out of that out of that wing. Part of the the process is, um, like I said earlier, and if I'm jumping around, I'm sorry, it's just because a lot of things that happen at once that require explanation. When I said earlier that you have to verify um, which engine has failed or been shut down or or had severe damage or indeed separated, the um, Part of the verification, well, part of the process, as I said, is retarding the thrust even. And when, when Trevor said confirm engine number two, and the right call would be A firm engine number two, I actually we stopped right there and I said, Hang on, Trevor, this aircraft rolled to the left. And if the live engine is on the left, why did it roll that way? We had no idea that the engine was separated by now. Um, what we did think it probably happened, and it has happened to 737-200s in the past, is that the thrust reverser buckets, which are at the back of the engine, which are literally like clamshell doors, and um, we thought maybe one of those had deployed um, on takeoff, which is why the light came on and why the thrust lever snapped back so fast. Um, that was just a sort of off-the-cuff uh, diagnosis. It was a hypothesis uh, because nothing was making sense. And by no means was it our final diagnosis, but it is something we discussed. So what we did was we took the live engine and just brought it back a couple of millimeters just to verify that that is indeed the live engine, because it was quite a famous accident. I believe it was British Midlands um, where they shut down the wrong engine. They had an engine failure in the descent when the engines were idle and they shut down the wrong engine. So... Uh, we did. So we checked that. We throttled back the live just a few millimeters, a few percent in the power. Verified that that was the indeed the uh, the live engine. Throttled it back up, and then did our uh, procedures on the on the dead engine, as as uh, as you would call it colloquially. After we'd done all that um, and accomplished the checklist, the associated checklist, um, Trevor did a, a phenomenal thing, which I can't praise enough. His captaincy that day. Is uh, what saved the day. Um, you mentioned that the, in the intro that uh, the man in the hot seat. It was, it was a completely a crude exercise. Um, any, any idiot can, can fly an aircraft, but to manage a situation like that uh, it takes true aviation skills and, and and ability. And I'm so grateful that Trevor was in the left hand seat that day. Um, because he's definitely an example um, of the culmination of a, of a lot of the, those points. He sat back and he said, "Okay, aircrafts under control, the flight parts under control. What else is wrong?" And that when we did a full, a full cockpit scan, and realised that we were losing fuel um, at a prodigious rate out of that number two, number two tank. What had happened was that. Um, when the engine broke off, it broke all the valves, et cetera, et cetera, away with it, and there was just a basically a big hole with pipe sticking out of it in the wing, and the fuel was just pouring out. So that we did the fuel leak, uh, fuel imbalance, fuel leak checklist um, as fast as we could, and during the process of this, I started to lose. Uh, we started to lose hydraulic pressure as well. The 737-200 is. Um, has two hydraulics, three hydraulic systems, but the two primary ones are the A system, the B system. The A system is driven off uh, pumps that are on the engines. And the B system is powered by two electrical pumps that are in the number two, the pumps themselves aren't in the number two tank, but the heat exchangers for cooling are. And these um, heat exchangers require, if I remember correctly, 760 kilograms of fuel in the tank to remain immersed with the cold fuel, therefore, uh, they keep the, the pumps cold and or the fluid cold. And they had now been exposed because the tank had drained. So they went um, into an overheat condition and we had lost our A system and we lost the engine and we lost the B system now. So we were flying on the standby rudder system, which supplies hydraulic emergency hydraulic power to the rudders only, and the um, manual reversion for those who don't fly a hydraulically controlled aircraft. Manual reversion means that you move the pulleys, the push rods, etc., etc., with your arms. Uh, there's no hydraulic boost. It's like driving a Mack truck without uh, without power steering. Uh, that's the how I can.
1: That that's very, push- very heavy, slow heavy. to respond. How heavy yeah. is heavy? How would you, you mentioned like driving a, a truck.
2: It's like driving a truck, yeah. And it, it there's kind of a dead spot in the middle uh, where you move the controls um, a centimeter or two and nothing happens. And then all of a sudden, the uh, push rods start taking the slack up and they start moving the flying surfaces and the aircraft starts. Uh, Starts rolling or or uh, pitching, whatever your uh, your command may be. So yeah, it's uh, it's difficult. The trim as well is all manual. So there's a big wheel by your left knee uh, that moves, and you've got to deploy a little handle, and you've got to trim trim the aircraft. So you fly with your right hand, do the thrust levers with your left hand, and the trim with your left hand. So it gets quite busy when you have a couple of uh, litres of adrenaline running through your your, your veins. It's it's not it's not very hard, but uh, it,
1: just, it's changing. Just cur- Sorry, just, just out of curiosity, and I'm, I'm pretty sure for people not may not be familiar with with the seven three seven. You're doing a lot of flying. You're also doing a lot of thinking because you've also mentioned a few times when this was all happening. You still had the capacity to think. Um, I want to touch on just that startle factor did when it happened did it happen so quickly that you just kind of responded instinctively to what the aircraft was doing or was there a degree of startle uh, almost like I can't believe this is happening moment that you almost had to push through and recollect your thoughts because it sounded like from very early on you were thinking very very clearly and uh, you know a lot of people might not actually have the capacity to to you be able to think uh, and make sense of, of what they're seeing in that kind of situation? Yeah, it was initially it was the aircraft
2: is rolling, you know, to the left, making it roll to the right. It was that simple. Um, so you, you react to what the aircraft's doing with a, with a, you know, with a muscle memory response, much as if you would in any aircraft. Uh, you'd be flying a Cherokee on finals and you get a gust that makes the aircraft roll you, you would roll it the other way. Um, so th- that was the reaction, was fly the aircraft. And the startle factor definitely was the um, with the with the, the Hudson River incidents and the Sully Sullenberger, they did a lot of uh, investigation into the startle factor um, thing. And the, the general thinking in, in terms of the, the human performance that came out of it the, is that anywhere between naught and one seconds, whatever you do must be a muscle memory um, reaction. Between, on the timeline, between one second and about three seconds, anything that you do there will be what they call a shotgun approach. You've kind of assimilated a bit of data in your head you look at, the, at the, what the aircraft's doing, and uh, you you throw, uh, thro- throw something at it, and you've got a 50-50 chance of, of things kind of going right for you there. Uh, you might make the wrong choice. And then after three seconds, you start doing what uh, or gathering what's called a cognitive response, where you've gotten over the startle. You've calmed down, and uh, you've said, okay, the aircraft's doing this, this, and this. This is probably what's happened. My knowledge of the system says XYZ, therefore, the outcome should be ABC. And you can start forming a cognitive uh, cognitive response to, to all of that. So, yeah, okay. there was definitely a factor, but the initial reaction was to fly the aircraft and get her away from the ground, get her wings level, get her on the radial. And um, we'll think about what happened in two seconds' time. Yeah,
1: I imagine that that navigation port, especially in, in K-town, it's just people that have been there. It's just a lot of high ground all around you. There's only specific escape routes, I think particularly off of Zero One, Um, what you, you're talking about. It's, it's Just get away from the ground, fly the aircraft and keep it safe.
0: A word from our sponsor. Located in the heart of the Sunshine Coast, 43 Air School is Africa's best and busiest flight school Offering you a wide range of aviation courses, from a private pilot license, airline pilot license, aircraft mechanic courses and so much more. Visit 43 Air School at www.43AIRSCHOOL.com to learn more.
1: Your engine is separated, you are at 50 foot, you lost your primary instruments, you're in bad weather, you trying to steer away from the hard ground, particularly in Cape Town, there is a lot of hard ground out there, particularly off of, off of 01. Um, you have a fuel leak, your hydraulics are fading away So you, you, you enter into manual reversion, you're flying this thing by hand. A lot of people might be asking the question, well, why not make use of the button? It's available then, it's you know, supposed to help reduce workload.
2: Yeah, and that's what you you, you should do. Um, whenever you, your workload is increased, be it in instrument conditions, be it in uh, emergency conditions, if the autopilot is available, definitely use it. Unfortunately, due to the technical uh, aspect of the autopilot being hydraulically powered or controlled, it wasn't available. We didn't have an autopilot available. Um, fortunately, being a multi-crew environment, and that's what the SOPs are designed for. One guy flies and another guy manages. So you can afford to um, focus almost not completely but, but but wholly on the flying while somebody else uh, does the, the thinking or, or the assessments and the uh, the management situation. And you can just take brain or RAM, <laughs> ram space away uh, every now and again um, for, for the discussion items, etc, cetera. But I definitely uh, would have used the autopilot had it been available.
1: So autopilot's not available, this is on you. You're flying this airplane in this kind of condition. Now, you've mentioned uh, Captain Trevor Arnold a few times. Um, he seems like a, a guy that's very capable of keeping a cool head even when you have these multiples cascading failures occurring simultaneously when you least expect it. I mean, these things always happen when you least expect it. In terms of options, how did you guys go about assessing what had happened or recapping what had happened and deciding what your options are? Because you mentioned the weather wasn't particularly getting Cape on and the, the, the nearest alternative is, of course, George, but you've also got this, this field leak the same time, so how did you go about unpacking this this uh, bucket of worms for for what it was?
2: Yeah, and um, with the diagnosis uh, before before you go into options, uh, it's always good to properly diagnose what your problem is. And part of the diagnosis was calling the cabin controller to the to the flight deck and telling you, look, you have had a severe uh, failure of an engine. Um, can she go and look out the windows and tell us what she sees? Now, it's very important as well not to give any leading questions. So, i.e., please look out the right-hand side of the aircraft and see if you see any fire. Because your answer is going to be there's no fire. Um, your answer might not be that, look, there's no engine. And <laughs> um, So, Trevor said to her, her name, her name was um, Marilyn, uh, who is a, I believe 28 year veteran of SAA, so a very experienced cabin, cabin controller. Um, Marilyn went out and he said, Marilyn, please go look out the windows and tell us what you see. That's simple. And she gone back. It was a full flight. Um, we had 106 souls on board, or so not souls on board, 112 souls on board, but 106 passengers on board that morning, which is uh, in the dual class layout that was a full house. So, she couldn't really get over the three seats to look out the window, um, especially with passengers. We had a couple of passengers that were uh, getting a bit rowdy, getting a bit panicked, um, starting to, to, lose, to lose a little bit. So, she had that also to deal with. So, she came back to the cockpit and she said, I cannot see the front of the aircraft right engine. Um, now, it sounds like a funny way to say things, but... Again, when you're facing backwards down the aisle of an aircraft, which side's right, which side's left? are right, my right? So she came back and said, the aircraft right engine I cannot see the front of. That's when we thought we'd had a complete failure of the nose cone of the JT-8. Um, they have got a de-icing sort of nose cone. And um, there have been a few instances worldwide, and I believe at the nationwide itself, where the nose cone had come detached. So initially we thought that would probably be uh, what's happened to us, which would have made sense with the with the annunciations we're getting, but not complete sense, but it was the closest we could we could get. So with that in mind, um, another um, technical thing that was holding us back is that the leading-edge devices on the 737-200 um, cannot be um, – when you have hydraulic failure, you can't retract it. they uh, when they're out, they're out. Um, so we are limited to two hundred and ten knots, which on on one engine wouldn't have got us to George. We would have run out of fuel going to George. So our takeoff alternative was was gone. and um, we uh, so we were pretty much committed to Cape Town with a fuel leak. And uh, the leading edge devices being stuck where they were, um, we kind of kind of committed. So on the downwind, when we were preparing uh, for the landing, and if I can just go back to the autopilot thing, with the two of us trying to prepare this aircraft for landing, we uh, suffered from a, a thing called task saturation, where we were avi- aviating because it was taking both of us to aviate. Um, We weren't really navigating. We were on a heading that was supplied to us by ATC, and we weren't communicating. ATC called us. We told them to stand by, because we're busy aviating. it. They called us again. And uh, they called us again a third time. We told them to stand by. And then the controller... Said nationwide seven two three turn right heading X Y Z terrain ahead, and we were happily on the downwind leg for zero one, cruising for Cape Hunklip. um Fat and happy because we were because we were so saturated in actually getting, keeping this aircraft flying and dealing with the man the engine uh, fire severe damage separation checklist dealing with the fuel leak checklist, dealing with the manual reversion checklist, getting the weather for Cape Town, discussing it, briefing the cabin crew, et cetera, et cetera. We became completely task-saturated. Uh, task and that's what first the first lesson of the day came there in terms of you might be flying the aircraft, but always take a step back, assess where you are, where you are in the flight envelope, where you are over the ground and where you are with the technical satellite aircraft and then get back into flying. Um, Don't fly the aircraft so much that nobody's watching the shop. If you, if if you know what I mean, Uh, you need, you need to take a step back, no matter how dire the situation may be, you need to take a step back. And, um, that was one of the one of the big mistakes we made that day. But the system works. We were under positive radar control, therefore ATC kept us away from the hills. So yes, the system worked. But it got through two layers of Swiss cheese before we got to to the backstop. So um, that's something that we took away. I took away from that day, and I hope anybody listening to this does take away from it that so never, never be so busy that you can't step back and just get an overall. Plan view of, of where you are in the sky.
1: So, you're on the Diamond, you, George, on option, you mentioned you, you got a fuel leak, you're losing quite a bit of fuel. Uh, the leading edge devices are extended, you're limited in terms of speed and, and what you can actually do. The only, only choice is to head back to Cape Town. Now, you mentioned when you departed that the weather already wasn't very good. What was the weather looking like and the conditions? Uh, Looking like the time made the decision to return to that.
2: Yeah, the weather was the weather was really crappy. Uh, Four hundred meters visibility at times, driving rain, low cloud. Uh, the wind uh, was severe crosswind. Uh, the crosswind limit for a 200 uh, in wet conditions with uh, manual revisions ten knots um, was outside of that, and that's where Trevor again. Um, so you know his his immense cool head and vast experience and phenomenal captaincy skills he just said dan look we can delay we've got the fuel to delay the approach a bit but we we committed we can't do a go around we don't have the fuel and we uh, can't get the gear up obviously and we're on one engine we don't know what kind of damages has been done uh, to the outside of the aircraft so we're pretty committed so let's talk about what happens when things don't go to plan what happens when we get to Decision altitude, we don't see the runway because with 400 meters of RVR, we're not going to see the the runway. Um, so we we mentally prepared ourselves for and briefed w- what is going to go wrong and how to how to do it, bearing in mind we'd never done it before. So uh, once uh, once we had briefed that, and the briefing went pretty much that when I called the side, and you haven't seen the runway, we're going to continue. And if we don't see the runway, uh, at at 20 foot, we're going to start easing her into a a flare, and at 10 foot, we're going to close the thrust and land on heading with whatever we can see. And he said, we might go off the runway, but nobody's going to die like this. And that was pretty much uh, briefing And and what we discussed. And, um, again, ATC, phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal crowd uh, at ATC. And when they called us, Trevor said to them, when they asked us if we were ready for the approach, kept giving us continuous weather updates, not just, you know, of the ATC, I'm talking about live, they were, they were calling it out live. And um, Trevor said, uh, to them, we are having difficulty with aircraft, with controlling the directional control of the aircraft. And ATC then took us, he asked us for a spot, he asked another aircraft for a spot wind. And he took us through the localizer and then brought us in on a very shallow intercept and let the wind blow us onto the localizer, which is phenomenal controlling. Um, I don't know anywhere in the world where, where, where people do that. Who have done that? But uh, ATC at Cape Town that day did that. It was, it was phenomenal. Uh, it's always stuck in my my head that the level of of controlling that day, which was a major, major, major contribution to the to the safe outcome of that flight. So we intercepted the localizer, um, as I said, drifted onto the localizer from an upwind position, drifted onto it, um, and then the glide slope. The glide wasn't a problem to maintain. We had oodles of power with that wing being now clean and, and, the, and the reduced weight of the aircraft. And um, the other thing, uh, sorry, that we had going uh, against us is that the the 73 is designed for 453 kilogram fuel imbalance between tank one and tank two. We had um, in excess of 6,000 kilograms imbalance. We had 4,300 kilos of fuel that were missing out of the tank and 2,000 odd kilograms of engine that were gone so again you know the, the, the controllability especially the manual version was it was difficult it was really difficult and i did a lot of flying um with the rudders to, to help the aircraft
1: can i and, just ask a question while we're on that you've, you've mentioned the, the importance of stick and rudder and you know looking at um Lock eye, lost control in flight events they have really been on the rise in, in in the past years and this kind of event requiring such a high degree of of handling skill do you think your gliding background that foundation had a part to play in your ability to operate that 737 seven in, in that kind of condition to the level that you did
2: definitely and without a doubt, um, the with the glider, you know, it's it's a very, very, very um, susceptible to adverse yaw because of the long wings. And you, you, if you don't use your feet in a glider, you, uh, you, you know, you you will never fly the aircraft in a um, in a controlled manner or, or, or in a coordinated manner and not be able to thermal it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it was drilled into me from age 16 that you know keep the ball in the middle keep the string in the middle uh because it's critical a glider will just fall out of the sky in terms of you won't be able to climb a glider in the thermal so so yes de- definitely 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 and um i think we tend to be blasé especially students tend i've noticed tend to be blasé about the secondary effects of controls and one day you know, it could it could save your aircraft uh, if you if you know about the secondary effects controls and and have practiced it. So it's it's a really good um, good exercise to 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 do something like that. You know, do the uh, secondary effects controls. So yeah, I definitely definitely
1: think that uh, it did. All right, Dan. So you are setting up for this approach. Um, ATC's vectored you onto final. Uh, the aircraft's in a great condition. You're flying the aircraft to below minimum, manual reversion, um, crosswind, using a lot of rudder to fly the aircraft, and you don't have the fuel for a go-around, so you literally have one chance to get this right. No pressure. Yeah, no pressure. Um,
2: and uh, as we touched on earlier, I think if you don't have depth of experience the bre- the, the breadth of your experience is, is is what counts um with the gliding you know you'd learn to fly with your feet um, you had to use rudder etc so the controllability of the aircraft if it's not giving you what it wants to give you what you need with the ailerons use the rudder secondary effective controls so um, flying a lot with the rudder there was bags of power for the uh, for the glide slope, that wasn't an issue. Speed control was was fine, and uh, glide slope control was fine, but the, the <laughs> I, I had the localizer pretty much surrounded. Uh, one dot each way, half-scale deflection each way, uh, just zigzagging as the aircraft sort of uh, settled down, um, and the wind gradient decreased as you get closer to the runway. And Trevor had previously briefed the the cabin, and again, I can't praise his skills enough. And uh, we've all listened to the to the briefing from the captain when he asked you, please, nicely to listen to the cabin crew, as they need to to brief you now. He said, "Ladies and gentlemen," and these weren't his exact words, but this is the gist of it. Um, and he said, "Ladies and gentlemen, the cabin crew are now going to brief you on um, our emergency landing." It is vital that you listen to each of the instructions, as your lives literally depend on it. And that's what he said to them. And that, I think, put everybody in the cabin in focus. That this is now for real. Um, it put us in focus. That this is for real. And on the glide slope, he gave the call: brace, brace, braces, which is where you uh, put your head in between your knees, or if you, you know, sitting in a jump seat, push your Push your chin down into your chest, depending on which jump sheet you said, you on. And the cabin crew started uh, giving their their shouted commands as they called, uh, which is "remain seated, remain seated." And we um, got to Minima. We didn't see the runway, and we continued. And I can't remember the altitude to 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 be uh, to be truthful, but we were definitely over the N two. I definitely saw uh, the N2 flash behind us when we saw the runway. We came out of this driving, driving, heavy rain, and it was—we could see all the way to Robin Island. The squall had passed through, and we could see to Robin Island it was phenomenal. And in sort of the sun was setting, uh, it was really, uh, really great. And um, Trevor said. I have control because the SOP is that in a, in a situation like that, the captain lands and maybe that was our second thing we could have done better that day or differently that day is that the situation determined that the aircraft was hard to control. Maybe leave it to the guy who's been flying it for the last you know 20 minutes. Uh, Cause he's got the feel of it and don't have a over control that a hundred foot to 150 foot um, with the aircraft in that sort of uh, state but those are the SOPs, that's what we're trained for and that's what we briefed. Um, So there's no time at 100 or 150 foot to, to change your mind. So he took control and like I said, like a good FO, I had lined this up with the edge lights of <laughs> the runway. So he took control and rolled it uh, and tried to roll it to regain the, the center line. He moved the controls, the, the requisite amount, nothing happened as explained earlier about the dead spot. He moved the controls further. Um, there was a four-letter word that came out of his mouth um, that's on the, the cockpit tapes. Uh, and then got her wings level and put her down on the centre line in the touchdown zone. Um, absolute crease. Uh, probably one of the best landings I've ever experienced in seventh sheet in my life. Um, we could hear the cabin crew um, continuing their shouted commands in the back. And we decelerated on the runway. You have a thing called a, um, an accumulator, which is basically hydrogen uh, sorry hydrogen gas nitrogen gas that uh, is a brake accumulator that you that you got emergency braking with because you don't have uh, hydraulic braking, and that, and it will give you three applications of brakes. Trevor had the presence of mind to pull this aircraft off onto runway one six three four so as not to block the runway behind us for any other traffic that may be short of fuel due to our emergency. Um, Absolutely phenomenal airmanship. Pulled off um, onto 1634, stopped the aircraft. The fire crews were there within seconds. Um, We uh, chatted to the fire crew and then... Trevor said, Dan, I'm not going to order the evacuation of the aircraft yet because we've got a lot of elderly people on board. Um, it's raining outside. Those rubber slides are going to be wet, and they're going onto tarmac. Um, there was, there were, we had a, a large contingent of, of German tourists, uh, pensioners that were out on a, on a tour, and um, he said, we've got these elderly uh, people on board. I'm not throwing them down a rubber slide if, I don't have the aircrafts, uh, if we don't need to. He said, however, while I'm in the cabin assessing the condition, if you have any inclination of a fire or the fire crews outside say there's a fire, order the evacuation. And uh, that's uh, exactly what it is. So I sat in the cockpit, chatting to the fire tender, Fox Tango won- uh, monitoring inside of the cockpit, and Trevor got out of his seat, went back, and he came back, and his face was the same color as his shirt. And he said, Stuff me, there's no engine on that wing. And then the 7-3's got a, a cockpit window that's actually an escape, uh, an escape window. I opened it, stuck my head out, and looked at the <laughs> looked at the right hand wing. And I leaned back the and I said, You're right, there's no engine on that wing. And that's the first time we realized that we lost the engine completely. Um, was after was touchdown. And the uh, the um, fire services got some stairs to the aircraft, and we did what's called a rapid disembarkation. So, no rubber slides, no inflatable slides, get the stairs, get everybody off the aircraft, away to the emergency services. And the cabin crew were phenomenal. They were absolutely um, superb. Um, Marilyn, Fritz, Nandipa, and uh, Polly were just Incredible people. They they got those passengers out and safely within 90 seconds of, of that door opening. Um, they were really good. Uh, I c I can't praise them highly enough. And Trevor for having the presence of mind to actually have read the PAX manifest and, and worked out that there's elderly people and that we're gonna get injuries if we if we start deploying slides. Um, and that's you know that's true situational awareness, that's true airmanship. It's not just knowing the technical state of your aircraft, but knowing every bit piece. That goes in there, including the the condition of your passengers and how many of them there are. So there's a lot more to to flying a passenger aircraft or a cargo aircraft than just to take off and landing. Uh, the management of that whole of that whole you know little um, cosmos of of things is is, is quite critical, and uh, I think that's what being a captain of an aircraft is about
1: is having that big picture all the time. Definitely, it's particularly in that kind of situation to keep a head, keep a cool head, given how much was going on. Yes. It just speaks to, to the quality of the captain and the quality of the crew and, you know, the, the aviation machine um, that surrounds it. It's, it's, it's hundreds of cogs, hundreds of people, all with their role to play. And when the chips are down, provided that they play their part, it's a good chance of a, of a positive outcome. I mean, that was a yep. very high-risk event.
2: Definitely, definitely. You know, it's uh, it's the sum of all parts. It's the um, you know, it's it's the engineer that services the aircraft. It's the um, the cabin crew. It's the air traffic controllers, and then the pilots at the end, because uh, you know they're just a small part of the of the cog. Sure, they you know they do the takeoff in the landing, but a lot of things could have gone wrong. Had the cabin crew not been uh, up to spec, or ATC been up to spec, for example. Um, and they are and i think that's one thing in south africa that we can be immensely proud of there's 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 a lot of uh, operators out there a lot of airlines out there and they they all do it well the standards in south africa are very very high and the standards of training um, from um 43 air school for example or any other air school um, are exceedingly high the standards of testing are high the standards uh, at airlines for, for initial type conversions are high, uh, for recurrency are high. Um, we, we live in an, in an environment of excellence, and it's very important to, to maintain that excellence, which is, I think we are getting right in SA despite the challenges that we may have here. Um, it is something that we can be proud of. The caliber of, of, of pilots in SA uh, is very, very high. And I've seen that I've now fly internationally and I can see that it's glaring how, how high the standards are in, uh, in, in aviation.
0: You're listening to PTC Industry Talks. Don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. We'll be bringing you new episodes weekly.